Hey everybody, welcome to The Gardening Show on Radio Karam. I'm flying solo today. My normal co-host Brendan is a bit under the weather, so wishing him all the best and I'm sure he'll be back for the next show in a few weeks' time. So yeah, I'll keep it a little bit shorter today, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> we do like to um, to talk a lot on this show. Um, but yeah, we are, or I am today, the host of The Gardening Show on Radio Karam and I'm excited to be joining you to talk about all things gardening and local food production. I'm a local dad and I share a passion, and who has a passion for the garden, sustainability, growing food and just giving it a go. And I also help to run Downs Community Farm along with Brendan, which is a budding non-for-profit just adjacent to the Seaford wetlands. Our mission here is to promote and share the benefits of home gardening in our local community. We'll be talking about gardening in general, playing a few tunes, and hopefully grow to engage with our listeners via call-ins, uh, guests, and interviews. But we do, of course, take questions from our audience here. So if you do have any questions, feel free to text them through to me, 0493 213 and uh, hopefully I will have an answer for you. And if not, I'll have it for you by the next show, of course. But yeah, I'd like to start today, of course, with an acknowledgement of country. I'd like to pay my respects to the traditional owners uh, of the land on which I'm broadcasting today, the Bunurong and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nations, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. So, what did I discuss? What did we discuss last week? We talked a bit about gardening with kids activities, safety, protecting plants and things like that. We talked about the difference between in-ground growing versus raised beds uh, or containers and pots, the pros and cons and things to consider. We also discussed the fourth permaculture permaculture principle in our series of um, permaculture lessons and that one is apply self-regulation and accept feedback. We did a spotlight on sweet alyssum, an amazing companion plant for every garden and we gave some of our recommendations for books uh, youtube channels and uh, yeah internet resources so if that's any of that stuff is interesting to you and you missed the last show you are able to listen back via podcast on the radio carom website it's radiocarom.org or spotify um, wherever you get your podcasts really just search radio carom so what am I going to be talking about today? One of my favorite topics, composting. <laughs> composting and worm farms or vermiculture. So talk a bit about that and um, yeah, what's it all about and what might be best for your particular situation. I'll talk a bit about the fifth permaculture principle, which is use and value, use and value renewable resources and services. Um, I'll do a, a short spotlight on winter pruning. It's, uh, you still have time. And uh, I think that's it. I'll, I will leave it there so I don't uh, end up talking at you for two hours. Um, but yeah, as I said, send through any gardening questions 0493 213 831. And I'd love to, uh, to hear from you all. Yeah, well, before we get into it though, and we'll go to a song, but um, we did have a question come through from one of our listeners, Angus, um, in the past couple of weeks in between shows. And he asks, coffee grounds, 
What can I do with a large volume of coffee grounds? How much can I put into compost? Can I put them around my veggies to deter slugs and snails? Does anything grow in them? Great question, Angus. Thank you for that. This is a, yeah, I, I feel like this is one of those topics where <laughs> I might, I might, uh, I might blow some minds and I, people might certainly disagree with what I have to say. Um, because I feel like coffee grounds are having or have been having a bit of a moment in the garden sphere uh, for, for a while now. Um, but the thing is, not everything you hear about them is accurate. They're not some magical, um, you know, compound that does a, a million things. So I'm, I want to dispel some of those myths and um, tell you what you actually can use them for and what they're really good for. So first of all, coffee grounds, of course, the byproduct of, of brewing coffee, high in nitrogen and potassium. So two of the three macronutrients that plants need, uh, which is obviously great. We want to have that in the garden. However, it is uh, quite you know, acidic and potentially toxic to plants in its raw form, in its fresh state. So it's not recommended that you add them to the garden as a fertilizer. Uh, directly to the garden as a fertilizer. The caveat to that would be if you are resting a bed for at least six months and you're not really going to grow anything in it, you're just kind of, um, you know, maybe doing a green manure crop or something that's not really super valuable for you food-wise, feel free to dig them in and or scatter them across the soil. And within about six months, they'll break down into something that's more usable for your next crop. So you can totally do that. However, um, adding them directly to soil that you're trying to grow, you know, food crops in is probably going to do more harm than good. So they're quite acidic and more importantly, they contain compounds that have been scientifically, I was reading papers (laughs) to back this up, have been scientifically proven to actually stunt plant growth um, at concentrations anywhere uh, over 2.5% of soil volume. So uh, a little bit can do quite a bit of damage. Um, What you can do though is you can add them to your compost. Of course you can. However, given their highly acidic nature, you do want to limit them to maybe 20% at most of your total greens volume. So we'll get into compost and greens and browns, but greens is, and it is a green, even though it is brown, uh, it is considered a green, high nitrogen um, compound. Um, yeah, it uh, goes in with your food scraps and your prunings, uh, your fresh prunings, your your grass clippings and things like that, but no more than 20%. Um, similarly, you can add them to, to a worm farm as well, uh, but to keep the amount to a minimum um, because, again, worms do not like an overly acidic environment um to do their work now that's what you can use them for the big one of course as angus asked is what about slugs and snails um (laughs) if you get a hundred gardeners in a room and you ask them you'll probably get a hundred different answers but unfortunately the science doesn't lie Um, generally speaking no they don't really work uh, as much as some other methods um, and in some cases they don't work at all. The reason for this is twofold. Number one, um, some people think that the texture is um, not pleasant for slugs and snails and they won't crawl over it. 
So you can do a little trail around your plants as a barrier. I have seen slugs happily going over <laughs> um, a, a trail of, of coffee grounds and getting straight to the veggies. So it doesn't work in that regard. The other one, which is where you you, you think it probably comes from, is um, where, where this sort of fact, I guess, comes from, is, is the caffeine content. So caffeine is definitely toxic and poisonous to slugs and snails. But coffee grounds don't actually contain... Um, a high enough amount of caffeine uh, that it can do damage. Now, this is assuming you've brewed your coffee correctly. If you've brewed your coffee badly and you've not drawn out, you know, all the goodness from your from your ground up coffee, and there is maybe still a fair bit of caffeine left, eh, maybe your mileage might vary. But generally speaking, it doesn't actually work. However, you can definitely use coffee. <laughs> Um, to, to deter slugs and snails or to, well, let's be honest, to kill them. Um, if you do want to do that, uh, what you should do instead is brew some coffee, let that cool down and then dilute it a little bit, maybe, you know, one part coffee, two parts water, something like that, and then spray that around your plants. Not on the leaves, again, um, you want to avoid the leaves because it can be a bit toxic, but just you know, gently spray it around on, on the ground, not too much, and that might help a little bit. So there you go. But coffee grounds, put them in your compost, absolutely, no issues there. And I hope that answers your question, Angus. Thanks so much for that. If any other people have any similar or different questions, feel free to send them in. Uh, but we'll start off the show now with a song. This one is Mako Road, The Sun Comes Up. And we are back. Once again, that was uh, Mako Road with The Sun Comes Up. Uh, and I actually just had a question come in uh, on the phone here. Uh, once again, that's 0493213831. And it's... Um, are citrus peels and onions a problem to worms in your compost? Um, that's a great question. This will actually come up <laughs> in this in this section that I'm going to talk about now of composting and worm farm. So I'll hold off on answering that question specifically and your answer will arrive. Uh, but thank you so much there, listener, um, from Anon. So <laughs> whoever you are, thank you so much. So let's get into... Uh, composting and worm farms. So, well, let's start. What's the difference between compost and and worm castings or worm poo, which is the reason you um, are, do have a worm farm at the end of the day? Pretty, I mean, there's there's a little bit of crossover. So, uh, worm castings or worm poo is 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 a fertilizer essentially. So, it's something that you will apply to add nutrients to your soil, um, you know, mixing it into the soil or even adding it to compost as well to kind of kickstart the composting process. Compost itself is really any matter that has any any organic matter that has been broken down and can be used in many different ways. Um, it can be used as a top dressing if you have a sort of no-dig garden bed and I'm sure we'll have an episode where we get into no-dig versus tilling and things like that. Um, so you can apply it, you know, as a thick layer on top of your garden beds, you can of course mix it into the soil as well as a sort of fertilizer or soil amendment. Um, 
really compost is something that everybody should be adding to their garden no matter what. Um, and worm castings is is just a really nice natural way to add uh, yeah nutrients into your soil um, as opposed to buying perhaps a synthetic fertilizer, um, which of course uh, is not good for soil life. So uh, that's the difference between the two. Both of course have great benefits um, for your garden and it just depends on the size of your garden, what you're trying to do, what you're trying to grow as to which is going to be best for you. Um, I mean, both really is the answer. Both are going to be good in most situations. So as I said, let's start with compost. Compost is any decomposing organic matter. So composting happens constantly, all the time, everywhere on earth. It's it's just part of the cycle of life, life and death, um, you know, Plants compost down, uh, humans compost down when, when we eventually depart. So um, fully decomposed matter is called hummus or humus. Sorry, not hummus. <laughs> Tell them I'm a bit hungry. Uh, hummus. And it is uh, really the most important thing you can add to your to your garden. It's, it's really the basis for all sustainable gardening. Now, when we set up a compost system to perhaps um, you know, use the things that would typically go into the green bin, and kind of keep them on site. Um, we are adding ingredients in in layers, um, really, so that they can break down effectively and create soil. Really, the breaking down process is done by microorganisms um, that are already in the earth, in the air, um, and it creates a, a really rich, healthy soil. And you've probably seen good soil before; it's that thick dark, crumbly, sort of black kind of soil. Um, what are the benefits of a composting system? Well, number one, it reduces waste. As I said, things that typically go into the green bin uh, can all be composted at home. And guess where they go if you put them into the green bin? They go to a place that composts them, puts them into plastic bags and sells them back to you. So you can definitely just skip all of those middle people and uh, do it yourself. Uh, it creates, as I said, a free garden resource. It, it builds up the soil level in your garden um, and it rejuvenates the soil because, of course, plants are pulling up nutrients to grow. So you need to put stuff back every single year or twice a year even is better. Making it at home means it's available when it's needed, which is really good. So um, you know, if there's a pot plant that's looking a little bit, uh, who knows what, you can just grab a little bit of compost and top it up. It's pretty quick and easy to make as long as you follow a few simple rules. So, I mean, let's get into it. How do you make compost <laughs> just really quickly? So as I sort of mentioned before talking about the coffee grounds, you've got your greens and you've got your browns. Your greens are the things that are high in nitrogen. So the easiest way to think about this is anything that's green actually. So food scraps, prunings, grass clippings, um, things that are wet, essentially, wet and green. Uh, but that also includes coffee grounds. That includes, um, you know, the leftover bits of your dinner, um, anything at all like that. Browns is the carbon, which, of course, carbon is really important as well. And the role of those is to, A, keep the moisture level in check and add air. Because when you – and you've probably – if you've done compost before – You've probably smelled 
bad compost, compost shouldn't smell. If anything, it should smell nice. So when it's really smelly, that's because there's not enough brown, there's not enough air and you've created an anaerobic environment. So one where there's not a huge amount of, um, of decomposition happening. Now, what are the browns? I mean, of course, things like straw, um, you know, wood chip, although you want to be a bit careful with, with wood chip specifically, cardboard, uh, newspapers, uh, if you have a shredder at home, all the little shredded bits of paper that come out the bottom, all that stuff is great to add to the compost. In terms of ratios, this is sort of like chocolate cake, right? Everyone has a recipe, but I think we can all agree that you know there's a few certain things that you need to make a chocolate cake work. With compost, the best place to start is, is 50-50. So 50, by volume, 50-50 of browns and greens. And a good rule to follow is every time you add some greens to the compost, so, you know, you finish dinner, you scrape out all your stuff into the compost, just add a a similar amount of browns on top. That's going to draw out some of the moisture. It's going to add air. It's going to keep your compost going. Now, what you might find then, depending on your diet, depending on the sorts of browns and greens that you're using, your compost might still be a bit smelly, in which case you just want to increase the amount of browns and just kind of, you know, gently bit by bit, kind of find your level. Or if your compost is really slow, it's not doing much, um, it doesn't seem like it's working, then you probably need to dial back the browns or increase the greens and just play around with it. But look online. I mean, there's abundant resources with which you can um, sort of you can get really deep with it, but look into each individual um, thing you can add, like well, how much wood chip do I, or how much paper do I need to add if I add lettuce, for example, things like that. Now, as for this question that came in, citrus peels and onions, of course, you can absolutely add those to compost. But given the acidic nature of those, uh, like with the coffee grounds, you just want to limit that amount a little bit. Alternatively, and well, maybe you should be doing this anyway, is just really chopping it up fine. So don't throw half an orange into the compost. That's going to take forever to break down. Really chop it up. Or even better, chuck it in the blender for a bit. Blend it up a little bit and then put it in the compost and mix it through. Then you're going to be fine. But yeah, limit it to maybe, you know, maybe 20% of your compost at most. Um, but there's no hard and fast rule. It It really depends on you know, the, the organisms that uh, happen to exist in your environment and how effectively they can break that stuff down. So that's compost. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a big rabbit hole. And I'm sure in some future episode down the line, we'll talk a little bit more about different ways to make compost and sort of talk about the all the gadgets you can buy, the different kinds of bins and things. Um and the pros and cons of each. But for this show, we'll just keep it to the what it is. Now let's talk worms. Now worms, this one's even more interesting for me. So uh, farming worms, and that's really what we're doing, we're just farming them, is called vermiculture. And it's a system of keeping specific composting worms in a confined space, adding food scraps and browns as well, and they'll feed off of that and, and, well, they'll basically poo out, um, yeah, 
you know, Wempu. It's an amazing, amazing compound. It's worth noting that there is a difference between earthworms and compost worms. So earthworms are sort of the slow and steady. They break things down over a longer period of time. They live for a very long time. Worms can live up to 20, earthworms can live up to 20 years. Composting worms are a little bit different. They've all got cool names like Red Devil and things like that. And they live more of a rock star life. So hard and fast. They get through material incredibly quickly. They produce worm castings at a much higher volume than earthworms. And they also die quicker as well. So yeah, just something to note. You, you can't really just start a worm farm by grabbing a bunch of worm, earthworms from your garden and throwing them in there. It's going to take you way, way too long to get what you want. Um, where can you buy worms? Lots of places. You can buy them at nurseries. You can buy them at um, the big green um, warehouse shop. You can uh, They come in boxes. And a well-managed worm farm should only really require that you buy worms once. You, If you're doing it well, they will keep sort of proliferating and get to the point where you can actually start more worm farms based off of how much they're reproducing. But we'll get into that in a little bit. So now worms are quite sensitive to very, very high volumes of high acid food waste, much like with the composting and the, um, the organisms that are breaking stuff down there. So it's advisable that you don't add onions and citrus to your worm farm unless you do it correctly. So keeping the volume down under 20%, and making sure that all the scraps are really well blended because what's going to help things break down quicker is, is more surface area. So one tip that I've, I've, um, I've gotten from um, Justin Calverley, uh, digger from Triple R, you might know him. Um, I'm doing a course with him at the moment. He's an absolute expert on, on worms. He has, he has gone down every rabbit hole with worms <laughs> And his system's actually really nice. Instead of using that little kitchen green bin, he just has his food processor set up and all the food scraps just go into the food processor throughout the day. At the end of the day, they get blitzed up to a pouring sort of, um, until you can pour it basically. You can even add a bit of water if, if it needs it. And then he pours that into the worm farm as opposed to just adding whole leaves or you know chunks of vegetables. By doing that, the worms can really break it down incredibly quickly and it does allow you to include a slightly higher volume of those highly acidic, um, highly acidic, uh, you know, highly acidic produce. So that's one way to do it. Um, but yeah, be careful, you know. This is the case with all worms really is, is you just have to think about it from the worm's point of view. Um, if there's a juicy little lettuce leaf and half of an orange, where do you think they're going to go first? They're going to go for the easy meal. If you blend it all together, they've got no choice. They'll just eat what there is. So that's um, a little bit there about that. What else can you add? You can add tea bags. You can add some coffee grounds, as I said. You can add tissues, uh, office paper, receipts, um, even a little bit of manure um, in there to just keep them happy. Absolutely fine. 
Now, what do they produce? They produce worm castings or worm poo. As I said, a great fertilizer. Um, the volume that you're going to be producing, it depends, of course, on how much you give them. But a well-managed worm farm could produce, you know, kilos, <laughs> literal kilos of worm castings every year. And if you've seen the commercial worm farms you can buy or you've built one yourself, you, you're probably familiar with the tiered system where they sort of keep moving up as they fill a chamber with worm castings into a new chamber, which is then the feeding chamber. And then you can just remove that out and you've got a huge amount of worm castings. So that leads me, of course, to, yeah, their house, the house that they live in. So uh, there's lots of ways you can uh, grow worms. Um, I mean, really anything that's a container <laughs> works. They don't need a lot. What they do need is an environment that is cool, that is dark, and that is moist. And moist is the important word, not wet, moist. I think there's a lot of misinformation out there about how to care for worms, and a lot of it, it, a lot of it seems to me like it's maybe designed for you to fail a little bit, so that you have to keep buying booster boxes of worms to top up um, the the population. What do I mean by that? So the, the most common type of worm farm, I'm sure we've all seen it. I'm not going to drop the name of the product, but it's, uh, it's large rectangular black plastic tubs, three of them. The bottom one has legs and a tap and a lid on top. Um, this is probably not the best way to grow worms because if you think about it, black plastic is not exactly something that insulates very well and it heats up a lot. So if you have one of those, don't throw it out, but put it in the darkest, shadiest, coldest part of your garden. Um, ideally somewhere that gets no sun ever is where you want to keep something like that. Um, but you can totally make them yourself. So I've seen some very successful worm farms in old bathtubs. You might not want an old bathtub full of worms sitting in your backyard. That's fine. <laughs> but Similarly, uh, buckets, um, you know, those stackable white painter's buckets, they're great. And what I have recently discovered is, is the, the, the best type of um, container for a worm farm is those large styrofoam cool boxes. Um, you know, if, if you have a nono in your life, a nono or nono gardener, they've probably used them to grow veggies. Those, they're stackable. Um, they are insulating and yeah, they're just, if you have them, they're great. Don't buy new ones, of course, because it is styrofoam. Try and get some, some old ones and you can very easily construct a worm farm out of those. And there's lots of tutorials online on how to do that. Now, worm poo, castings. Of course, you can add them to poor soil to improve that. You can add them to your soil raising, uh, to your seed raising mix um, to help give those seeds a boost once they've popped their true leaves. One thing as well, actually, before I forget about the um, worm homes um, is the commercial ones usually have a little tap at the bottom. Now, what they might tell you on the packet is that it's good to um, flush your system, in other words, pour a bunch of water in the top and then collect the liquid that falls out the bottom or naturally through the process of um, 
you know, farming these worms, you will get liquid coming out the bottom. This is wrong. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for anyone who disagrees with me, but this is actually really wrong. There should never be any liquid coming out the bottom of your worm farm. And I know this is maybe, this will ruffle a few feathers, but water coming out the bottom is not worm wee, it's excess moisture. And what worms want is a moist environment, much like the texture of a, a, a wrung out sponge. Think of it that way. Just moist, not wet. Wet worms drown or they'll rise and they'll move and they'll stop doing work until the water has passed. So by having a good mix of greens and browns, you should be able to keep the, and of course having your worm farm not exposed to sunlight, it should stay relatively moist and nothing should really come out the bottom. So a tip for you, if you have one of those, leave that tap open always, put a little jar underneath and if you ever have liquid coming out the bottom, dial back the moisture. Of course, if you find that your, your worm farm is a bit dry um, to the touch, of course, mist it with a bit of water or something to, to get it moist again, but very slowly, small amounts of water and just enough until you see maybe one drop come out the bottom and then stop. By doing this, you are going to keep your worms alive None are going to die and I promise you, you will never need to buy more worms. You can hold me to that if you want. If you do, I'll, I'll buy them for you. <laughs> so that's, um, that's worm farms. I know that goes against what's often on the packet of these worm, these commercial worm farms, um, worm, worm cafes, worm homes. But take it from the experts at vermiculture and they will tell you that that's the right way to do it. Keep it moist, never wet. So I'm sure <laughs> I, I've, I really would love to have heard uh, Brendan's <laughs> opinion on this one, but maybe we'll touch on that next week. So worm wee, that's the thing that obviously um, that water that you want to be collecting at the bottom, people call it worm wee. It's sort of a misnomer. So um, worms expel their... Um, their castings and their urine through their skin and that just helps to keep the soil moist. It should never really be dripping out. They don't produce enough for it to drip out of the bottom. If you want to make a worm tea, which is absolutely a good thing, the way to do that is really simple. So once you've got your worm castings, let's say you've got at least three handfuls worth, take three handfuls and put it into a standard 10-litre bucket and then fill it up with water. Let it sit for a few weeks and that's going to create a worm tea. What you will have at the end of, at the end of a few weeks is um, about nine litres of worm tea and about a litre of sludge at the bottom. Leave the sludge, you can add that to your compost or you know, make more worm tea out of it just by keep adding water. But the worm tea that you've made, those nine litres, split that out into three other buckets, three litres per bucket, and then top those up with water. And there's your worm tea. Perfectly diluted, ready to go in your garden. What does that mean? Three handfuls of worm castings equals between 27 and 30 litres of worm tea. And if you have a worm farm, you know how quickly they can produce castings, which is why one worm farm 
can very effectively fertilize your entire garden without having to bring anything in from the outside unless your plants have specific issues. And we'll talk about that in another show. Um, yeah. There you go. That's, that's my that's my my diatribe on worms. Um, but yeah, what are the benefits of um, a worm farm? So they're small. You know, you can fit them anywhere. As I said, you can do them in a bucket uh, under a potting bench. You know, you can you can really upscale it. I have heard of people that have gotten really technical with it, and they have had, you know, a dozen different worm farms feeding certain types of food to each worm farm to create worm castings that all have a slightly different nutrient profile you don't have to go that crazy with it but it is possible so have a think about it though now in terms of worms or compost uh, which one which one should i have Um, you can totally do both i will say when it comes to compost The volume required to effectively take care of all of your composting needs might not be achievable in in a standard, you know, home garden. So, for example, in my garden, which, you know, in terms of growing space is maybe, oh, I don't know, maybe eight metres by six or so, uh, I would have to sacrifice at least a third of that space to compost making to have the enough compost to top dress all of my beds effectively. And that would be about 10 centimetres of compost on all of my garden beds every year. A better way might be just to do chop and drop. So to create compost the natural way, when you're you know getting rid of your, your plants for the season, you're, you know, you're putting something new in, whatever's in the garden already, just chopping it up finely and just letting it lie. That is going to compost and that's absolutely fine to do. Of course, granted, that's not a look that everyone maybe wants in their garden. It's a little bit all over the place. But that might be a better option than trying to actually create a huge volume of compost or having to buy in a lot of compost. If you are going to buy in compost, I do recommend that you have a look at it first if you can. Test it, maybe even take a pH test down. And just know what you're getting. Um, I think that, that's that's really valuable to know. But yeah, give it a go though. I mean, there's nothing wrong with with having a small compost bin. There's all manner of um, systems that you can you can get involved with. But just have a think about whether that's a good use of your space, uh, and whether you know spending maybe a hundred dollars a year uh, on a cubic meter of, of compost might be better for your particular situation. If you have a very large garden, go for it, of course. What you might do instead is is worms. Worms work for everybody in almost every environment. You can do them on a balcony and it's probably a better use of your food scraps um, with regards to the output that you're getting and fulfilling that need in the garden of, of fertilizer. So there you go. That's it. Uh, yeah, I'm keen to hear, if you're listening to Brendan, I'm, I'm keen to hear what you think uh, next week. But there you go. That's uh, composting and worm farms. There's obviously lots of different ways that you can, uh, other ways that you can obviously compost material down um, or process 
sort of greens. You can have chickens or quail, um, a goat, you know, has lots of things you can do. You can even just bury stuff directly into the ground. That's absolutely fine. But, um, yeah, food for thought. Have a think. Look at your garden. Think if, if, if you're having trouble making compost, you're not getting the volume that you want, um, maybe get some worm farms instead. Um, or not. Who am I? I'm just a guy on the internet. So <laughs> let's go to a song. I need a drink of water. This one is oh, one of my favorite songs. Uh, this is Australia by The Shins. Come on, Freddy's Kitchen in Station Street for a coffee and something nice to eat. Yeah, the pizzas are great. In fact, all the food rates down at Freddy's. Caram Station Street. Come on, come on, come on, down to Freddy's now. Come on, come on, come on, down to Freddy's now. It's a pizza. It's a mystic pizza. And I am back. And once again, that was the Shins with Australia. And I have to say, uh, I've not yet been to Freddy's Kitchen uh, in Caram, but I... I will make a point to go there because I've, I've heard this out a few times and it, it has now stuck. So <laughs> the power of advertising. But yeah, let's um, let's get into permaculture. Um, I, For those that are new, uh, every week I've been going through the permaculture principles, the 12 permaculture principles one by one, uh, talking a little bit about how they relate to uh, home gardening in particular and uh, yeah, hopefully leave listeners with a, a to-do list for the week or for the for the fortnight um, of how they can implement this in their own patch. So the fifth permaculture principle is use and value renewable resources and services. So much like the previous four permaculture principles, they all really tie in together. And this one for me really speaks to I think what a lot of people think of when they when they think of permaculture and, and what it's about. Um, renewable resources of course as opposed to um, non-renewable and we'll talk a bit about that in a gardening context so this principle it encourages us to use nature's abundance using biological resources means that they are inherently regenerative this ranges from things like mulch farm animals even things like yeast so biological resources use energy from the sun to make more of themselves and thus they do not become a waste product. Or a quote that I love uh, is, nature makes no waste. Let that one sink in. So an example of this principle is, of course, mulching your garden to suppress weeds. Now, if you are in the process of suppressing weeds in your garden, you might use a solarizing plastic, for example, um, which, of course, is made with petroleum, um, which is not renewable, or you might instead use um, layers of cardboard. Cardboard will break down and it will feed the soil over time. So there's an example already of, of where you might choose one that's a bit more regenerative over the other. Now, as far as possible, we need to try and limit our dependence on outside resources by using what we have on our property as well. So if you need mulch, you can grow it. <laughs> you know, you can, uh, for example, lemongrass is a great one. Lemongrass, uh, I don't think anyone who has lemongrass has figured out how to use all of it. <laughs> so it's actually a great thing to use as mulch. Um, 
you know, to edge out grass. Um, you can cook with it, of course. You can make tea and things like that. Um, you can also use the chop and drop method that I mentioned in the composting section um, as a slow compost happening naturally, but also a mulch to suppress weeds from coming through. Now, this principle also applies to you know larger pieces of land as well. If you do need to till your land, um, you might consider using you know chickens or pigs if you have access uh, to do the work instead of a tractor, for example, that's using you know uh, petrol or diesel and therefore a non-renewable resource. As uh, also, if you do use animals to do that work, uh, they're going to be pooing the whole time and they're going to be improving your soil too, which is going to reduce your need for perhaps using a synthetic fertilizer. And of course, synthetic fertilizers, some of them do use uh, non-renewable um, compounds in them. Don't quote me on that. So when you are designing... Um, your your patch or your land or you know you're trying to figure out oh how do i do this in a more renewable way there's a couple of questions you can ask so one how does nature deal with this problem because at the end of the day doesn't matter how good of a gardener you think you are you could be costa on gardening australia um nature does it better nature has been doing it for billions of years and we will never be as good as the natural environment is. So how does nature do it? Maybe you can follow that. Does your solution currently rely, or your current solution currently rely on a non-biological resource? So actually trying to figure out what are the things in your garden that are non-renewable. Write a list. You'd be surprised. If your normal solution to a particular problem in the garden does rely on a non-biological resource, are you able to replace that solution with a biological one or not? And figure it out. Maybe you can't, but I guarantee you'll find a way no matter what. So, yeah, I mean, this is pretty self-explanatory, right? Um, but one example that I, I really want to go into with this one, because it is, I think, horticulture's dirty little secret, is the reliance on black plastic. Now, I can't remember where I heard this quote, but if you go into, uh, you know, you go into a nursery and you're likely to find just as many individual pieces of black plastic as you are plants. You know, let that sink in. Every single, most of the things that you buy in a nursery, uh, at least in terms of established plants, come in a black plastic pot. Now, I understand the need for this, of course, but surely there's a, a better solution. And certainly in your own garden, there there's so many ways you can do it better. Anything can be a pot. Just start with that. So what can you use instead of black plastic? So, you know, biodegradable seed pots. Um, so ones that are made from, you know, coconut core or peat or rice husks. Um, even there are plastics that are made from um, different natural compounds, um, renewable compounds rather, um, ones that are made of, I think, it's like orange skins or something. I don't know, but there, there is options there. Of course, some of those um, might be more expensive than just buying you know, plastic seedling trays. I, I get that. So 
let's think of some other solutions that are much cheaper than plastic uh, pots. Newspaper pots. So using uh, sheets of newspaper and some sort of a mould, so you can use toilet rolls for example, you can create pretty effective seedling trays um, or you know seedling pots that also break down and feed the soil. So there you go, there's one. Uh, natural... Uh, sorry, recycle containers is another one. So repurposing household items. Now, if you are a consumer of eggs and you don't have chickens, say you buy, you buy, uh, you know, egg dozen packs. Every time you buy a pack, you've got 12 seedling tray. You've got a seedling tray with, with 12, um, 12 pots in it right there. How many of those do you buy in a year? Why don't you start collecting them? And then when spring comes around uh, or, you know, at the end of, some uh, at the end of winter when you're looking to plant your seeds there you go you've got a whole bunch that you can use um just make sure you obviously put some drainage holes in the bottom but there's nothing wrong with starting seeds in a container like that um even things like cans so you know a baked bean can you know give it a good rinse fill it with soil there's no reason you can't start seeds in there you know sure you might like the look of everything being really nice and clean and uniformly black and that's fine. Um, but have a think about really the amount of plastic that you're consuming, right, um, when, when, you, when you do that. Also, I mean, just plant straight in the ground. I mean, that, that's the way that nature does it, uh, of course, it can be a little bit more difficult in terms of um, having to over-sow seeds uh, because some will be eaten probably by by, uh, by birds or by other sort of animals. But there's nothing wrong with starting seeds directly in the ground um, and you can protect them with all manner of, you know, half, half bottles or, you know, glass cloches or anything like that. Um, so, yeah. That's pretty much it. I don't want to go too much into it. I do want to keep this show somewhat brief. But that's your that's your task, listeners, for the next fortnight is uh, – or do it this weekend. Look around your garden and find all of the things that you use in your normal gardening life that are non-renewable. So hint, start with the plastic. Um, seedling trays, of course. If you have them, don't throw them out. But, you know – Make sure you use them really well. If you can recycle them at the end of their life, recycle them and try not to buy any more. If you are a person that buys, uh, you know, gardening tools that maybe have plastic handles, um, perhaps next time one of them breaks because they always break, try to, if you can afford it, uh, buy something that is a little bit of a higher quality something that is, you know, has a wooden handle, for example, um, or a metal handle, that's going to be, A, it's going to last you much longer. It's going to be of a higher quality typically, but you can, you can keep fixing it. You can replace handles quite easily. If you have a, a one-piece molded trowel, uh, once that trowel has cracked, it's going to start becoming quite useless. So there you go. Start with that. Uh, we could also get into synthetic fertilizers, but, you know, that's, that's a whole nother kettle of fish. But, you know, if you do use synthetic fertilizers, have a look at what organic 
natural um, options are available. And to be honest, they might be a little bit more expensive, maybe, maybe not. But if they are, think of it this way. They'll last you longer because you can use slightly less because they're more available to your plants. So there's less wastage and you are not introducing synthetics that come from who knows where into your soil, into your living soil. So there you go. Permaculturalists in the making, go out there, take an inventory of what you've got and let's start replacing some of that stuff with a more renewable natural alternative. Yeah. Let's go to another song. This one uh, is, you might remember this fella from a couple of years ago. Uh, he's, still, he's still banging around. Pete Murray <laughs> and his song, George's Helper. Hi, everybody. This is Wit from Spiderbait. When I'm passing through Karam, aside from slowing down to 50 kilometres an hour and reminisces about doing the Eel Race Road Rumba or the Watley Street Wiggle, I like to tune in to Radio Karen and get down with the good vibes. Welcome back. And once again, that song was George's Helper by the one and only Pete Murray. Now, I just actually had a few more questions come through or a two-part question come through during the song. Um, so another Anon. So thank you, Anon. Um, can you prune green plants and call it green, and then sweep up brown leaves and call them brown. Uh, <laughs> and the second part, are lawn clippings good for compost? So that first part, uh, yes, is the simple answer. So in terms of uh, green, anything that is green and you know has very recently been alive, um, that is green, absolutely. So you can add that to your compost as part of your greens. Now, if your prunings uh, have a lot of woody material, um, a lot of you know, not stems, but, you know, twigs and sticks and such. Um, maybe put those aside for a little bit. Um, maybe use them for something else um, to build a structure or something uh, because adding a lot of woody material can can leach uh, nitrogen out of your compost and, and out of the soil, which is why we typically don't mulch uh, vegetable beds with wood chip, uh, but we do annuals. There's a whole, there's a whole thing there. We'll do an annuals versus perennials um, section on, on another show, but you can absolutely do that. In terms of sweeping up brown leaves, yes, if the leaves are brown, uh, properly brown, they're dry, they've, you know, they're crispy when you, you know, when you step on them or when you crush them up in your hand, they are browns, um, and you can absolutely, and it's a good idea when you are sweeping up your leaves that have fallen. Uh, you know, at the end of autumn or, you know, start of winter is to actually keep them somewhere dry um, and near your compost. So that way you've always got a source of brown that you can add when you add your greens. It's a great question. Totally can do that. Lawn clippings are good for compost. Totally, absolutely they are. The issue with lawn clippings is people often, yeah, okay, no, normally you're going to end up with quite a volume of them when you mow the lawn and if you add them in too thick of a layer they can sort of mat together and get quite sludgy and again anaerobic so if you have a ton of lawn clippings that you need to get rid of in your compost 
easy. What you do is just make sure that you do really thin layers. So no more than, you know, a couple of centimeters thick, kind of just sort of sprinkle them on and then do a layer of brown and then do some more grass and then some more brown and just make sure you're layering it like a lasagna, right? I think a lasagna is the best uh, analogy here. You need the pasta sheets to soak up some of that moisture from the sauce. Otherwise, you've got a tomato soup or you've got a bunch of um, just, you know, hard pasta. So you need a nice balance and you need to make layers. <coughs> Sorry. So, yeah, definitely use your lawn clippings. They're a great source of greens. They're quite abundant for people that have lawns. But just make sure that you are not creating an anaerobic environment and that you're sprinkling them on. Okay, so let's get into um, our last little section for today, which is a spotlight on winter pruning. So this is one that um, Brendan put together. So I'll, I'll continue on. I'll carry the, uh, carry the torch here because it's something that I'm very interested in is, is pruning. So the traditional time to prune your deciduous fruit trees, so deciduous being trees that drop their leaves in winter, um, so that's, you know, stone fruit, apples, pears, you know, things like that, uh, is in late winter when they are completely dormant. Um, so what you want to do is make sure you do this before the buds open. That's really, that's really the, um, the crux of it. So pruning, what is pruning? Uh, essentially, it's a haircut for plants, but really you're removing selected parts of a tree to control its growth to suit a number of different purposes. And we'll go into a few of those. So pruning that's carried out in the first three years is, is really just to create the shape of the tree. And that's called formative or framework pruning. Um, so that's just something that's really important to make sure that you're not dealing with some very difficult to handle tree down the line or pruning it to suit the spot in the garden that you've you've selected for it once the tree has grown into its desired shape roughly so within you know two three years then you can keep it that way with maintenance pruning or de detail pruning so that's the other kind now if a mature tree needs reshaping because it's grown too large or it's become neglected um, you can restore the shape and the amount of fruiting wood on the tree with renovation pruning. So there's your three kinds roughly that, that pruning falls into. Now it's worth noting, fruit trees do not need pruning to bear fruit. Um, but if we don't prune, the tree can become too large and difficult to manage. Um, unmanaged trees can become overcrowded with a lot of non-productive wood and can move towards... Um, only producing fruit every other year, so biennial cropping. And then when they do fruit, they're likely to produce lots of very small fruit that's too high to reach. So, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of examples of this, but um, that that's pretty much why we want to maintain fruit trees at, at a certain size, um, particularly in the home garden. So... Why do we prune? Let's let's break it down to a few um, a few points here. So, as I said, maintain the tree in a specific shape. That could be something like a vase shape, 
which is really good for allowing airflow through the center of the tree and is something that is typically done with things like uh, with stone fruit, but you know, plums, apricots and such. Uh, a central leader, so maybe you have limited space and you want to just have one strong leader going up so that you can pack more trees in. You can totally do that. Or the espalier form. So espalier is... Um, French word, I think, uh, but basically it's it's pruning a tree into into a two D plane. So usually along a fence line, and it enables you to, you know, actually crop quite a lot, but have a really easy to um, to maintain tree that doesn't take up a lot of space and is very easy to harvest as well because everything is right there in a flat sheet in front of you. Now, limiting size, another reason why we prune, uh, because low trees are just easier to manage and that means easier to prune <laughs> themselves down the line. It's easier to harvest from them. It's easier to spray them if you have to for some reason and to net uh, to protect the fruit from, from you know possums and birds and such. Third reason why we prune, to allow light to penetrate into the canopy. Uh, this... Is, is good for a lot of reasons, but uh, the main one for me really is reducing fungal disease. So fungal disease comes from environments, where, where does fungus like to grow? Environments that are overly wet and cool and dark and um, a really dense interior of a tree is, is going to be more susceptible to those sorts of diseases. Uh, more light into a tree also um, ensures that fruit can uh, ripen more evenly uh, and it also reduces the shading of lower branches which ensures that you are getting more fruit on those lower branches where they're you know, easier to pick and uh, less likely to be attacked by birds. Now you might also prune to limit fruiting and you might think whoa why the hell would I <laughs> limit the amount of fruit that I'm getting but if you thin out uh, fruit, uh, you typically will produce larger, more consistent crops year to year rather than lots of little fruit um, every second year. This is also important when it comes to um, a very heavily cropping young tree. Uh, the weight of the fruit can actually damage or break branches. So it's actually quite important to, to cut things back. Um, and, you know, if you have a Let's take an example, a, a, a plum tree that's maybe four years old and it has a relatively small branch with six plums on it. Maybe cut it back to two. It'll be worth it for those two plums, trust me. Another reason, removing unproductive wood. Um, so wood that has very few leaves and flower buds and encourage the plant to shoot out some more productive new growth uh, to increase your harvest. And finally to, well, remove the three Ds, right? So dead, diseased or damaged branches. Removing those is important because they are not adding anything to the plant uh, and that disease can, of course, spread. So we want to get rid of that stuff as quickly as possible. Um, yeah, there you go. There's some reasons. Now, pruning, generally speaking, uh encourages regrowth uh, and that's really what what pruning is about right it's it's think of it in terms of 
nature. Or I was going to bring it back to nature because nature knows best. Um, trees are naturally pruned in the wild uh, by animals eating branches, you know, or breaking them as they walk past. So in an evolutionary sense, that's a sign for plants to produce more growth. This is why um, we cut grass very often so that it gets thicker and more lush, right? Because pruning increases that growth. So yeah. Now summer pruning is another kind of pruning. We won't get into this one so much, but you know, in terms of evergreen trees, so you know, things like citrus, for example, tropical fruits, um, you can prune them in summer. You can also prune them in winter. It's best to prune them twice a year. Uh, and that's more just to maintain the shape of the tree, less so about, um, you know, increasing fruit production. So, yeah. Now, understanding what to prune. Before we start pruning a tree, I, I know it's sometimes it's very, um, you just want to get in there and start hacking at things and, and make it look a certain way. It is important to understand how different parts of a tree grow and what happens when we prune them. So upright growth is generally vegetative, so non-fruiting, green leafy growth. So you'll see it sort of at the start of or you know, throughout spring, um, big long shoots being put out with lots of leafy material. That's the plant trying to just increase its mass essentially. Horizontal branches, um, the ones sticking out sideways, generally favor the formation of fruiting buds. So they're less vigorous because their job is to produce the next generation of plants as opposed to growing the plant itself. We can prune, uh, shorten branches uh, to create more of the growth that we require. So pruning a vertical branch will typically cause the branch to branch, <laughs> sorry, um, and split and, and create more vegetative growth and branching. So... Uh, an example, not in the tree world, but in the herb world is uh, things like mint or basil where you pinch the tips and it will cause the, the plant to split into two and, and bush it out. Very similar with trees and vertical branches. Pruning a horizontal branch renews the fruiting wood and thins excessive fruit. So that's how that's the reason you'd, you'd prune either of those types of branches. We can also thin out branches to improve fruiting. So thinning out the vertical branches, especially the ones in the middle of the tree or ones that are crossed over each other, um, allows for more light and more even ripening. Thinning the horizontal branches uh, removes fruit and it has the same effect as thinning fruit on, on one particular branch. So just less weight onto the tree. Now, note. Horizontal branches that are left uncut, they will bear fruit earlier, of course, and they'll crop heavier because they are more established. Now, branches that are bent at angles of, you know, diagonal 45 to 60 degrees, they're sort of in the middle, right? They achieve a balance between vertical and horizontal growth. They can hold more weight of fruit without breaking. They're typically stronger in that formation. So it's good to kind of be careful with how many of those that you prune because that's that's the good stuff, right? That's really what we want is a nice healthy tree with um, good branching. Cool. So how do we prune more specifically? So new growth is going to occur near the area of the pruning cut. Now, the more you cut off, 
the more regrowth that's going to be produced. With a caveat there, you know, you can't just prune all things really hard and then expect them to bounce back really quickly. Uh, so it's good to do a bit of research on how much you should prune the particular trees that you have in your garden. When you are pruning, anytime you see an outward-facing bud, because that's what you want to keep, those outward-facing buds, you want the thing to branch out, not branch into the center. You want to leave a bit of tree branch uh, above that bud because naturally as you prune, the part that you've cut is going to harden off. It's going to dry out. And if it's too close to that bud, it's going to dry off that bud and kill it. So, you know, some people will tell you an inch. Some people will tell you a centimeter. At least half a centimeter to a centimeter is, is usually going to be okay. And do so at an angle so that water can run off away from the bud. So it's hard to do this without drawing a picture. But anyway, so <laughs> if you're doing a 45 degree cut on a branch, make sure that the top of that cut, the pointy bit is on the same side as the outward facing bud. And that way water will run away from it. Hope that makes sense. When you're removing branches that are smaller than let's say two centimeters thick, you can certainly just use secateurs. No issue there at all. Um, if they're bigger, use something bigger. You know, use your big loppers. You don't want to, you, you want your cuts to be as clean and easy and quick as possible to reduce the chance of, of plant disease and, um, and ongoing damage. So don't do what I've done in the past, which is grab my, my secchies and uh, try to cut things that are way too big for what they're for and end up crushing uh, branches uh, or even I've, I've broken a pair of secateurs before doing that. So use the right tools as well. Now, if you are cutting uh, branches at the trunk, so you're you know, taking off a whole branch, do not cut them flush with the trunk because once again, there's going to be a certain amount of dryness that moves back towards the tree from that cut and you want to ensure that the outside of your tree is not being affected by that because those those outside layers of a tree under the bark is where all the nutrients and where the water is pulled up from so you know give it a bit of space at least a couple of centimeters maybe a little bit more when you're removing large branches with let's say a pruning saw you want to prevent tearing off the bark and damaging the tree as it comes off because again, bark is there for a reason. So you can use a three-cut method for pruning. Number one, leave a short stub, as I said. That's called a collar, actually, that you want to leave. Um, and if you can, um, even score the bark with a knife or something before you cut off that branch to ensure that you're not peeling bark off of the main trunk. Now, that's pretty much it. There's a few other bits and pieces, a lot of tips and tricks. You know, you'll hear things people say it's good to apply paint um, or a sealant to a cut that you've pruned to protect the tree. 
not advisable at all. Um, let them air dry and heal naturally. There's really no benefit. Um, and in fact, it can actually encourage disease to apply other products. Um, yeah. If your tree already has an established shape, they're just pruned to maintain the shape. Um, remove all the dead, diseased um, branches, as I said. Anything that's crossing over and any suckers as well. So anything a sucker being, um, if you have a fruit tree that's been grafted, so the roots are from one plant and the, the good part of the tree, that well, the part that they're both good, the part that uh, has the fruit that you want is grafted onto it. Sometimes um, suckers will grow out of the rootstock. So you'll see it, any growth that comes under that, that point where the plants were um, were joined, definitely cut that off because it's typically going to be quite unproductive and it's going to rob water and nutrient from the part of the tree you do want to grow. Yeah, I think that's it. I'm going to leave it there. We can obviously come back to pruning and do a more of a, I guess more of a masterclass on pruning when Brendan is back. Uh, but I'd like to leave it there. Um, have a look because different trees require different styles of pruning. So do your research online. But absolutely, you should be pruning your fruit trees no matter what. Just for your own sanity and getting going back to the permaculture principle of obtaining a yield. If you want to obtain the best yield from your fruit trees, give them haircuts. Trust me on that. Now, one more song for today, and then we're going to start wrapping up the show. So this one is uh, an oldie, an oldie. It's from the 90s. That's, that's pretty old now. Uh, more Chebas hit the sea. Hi, this is Matt Joe Gow, and you're listening to Radio Karam, which is local community internet radio. And uh, we were having a chat about community radio earlier and how important it is to Melbourne, how important it is to the scene here, the music scene, but also the wider community. So check out Radio Karam, tune in. Welcome back. Once again, that was The Sea by Morcheba. Now, I actually had one last question come in. Another Anon. <laughs> Just a reminder, if you can, do, do send through your name um, on the text line, um, unless you don't want to be called out by name, of course. Um, but this is a great one. I thought I can, I can do a quick little answer to this one. Uh, thanks so much for all the tips, Henry and Brendan in uh, brackets. Can you tell me the difference between uh, slow release and liquid fertilizer so great question um oh yeah where do we start so yeah broadly speaking fertilizers are going to come in one of two varieties um slow release which is really anything that isn't in liquid form and a liquid form now the main difference is in the time that they take to act on your plants so Slow release, it's in the name. It's a slower release because uh, a non-liquid compound has to be broken down before the plant can use it effectively. Of course, I, I will preface this by saying the preference should always be to use um, sort of natural fertilizers or certainly non-synthetic fertilizers because not only are they going to break down much quicker but the plant will actually be able to use all of that goodness. 
um, whereas synthetic fertilizers, correct me if I'm wrong, somebody, but uh, I believe um, the effective rate at which plants um, take up those nutrients from a synthetic fertilizer is about 30%. So, you know, a lot of it is just leaching out and, and not really being used by anything. So when we say slow release, how slow are we talking? Well, typically speaking, about a season. Um, so, you know, three three to six months. So if you are applying a slow release fertilizer to your veggie patch, for example, maybe some organic pelletized um, slow release fertilizer uh, for spring and your spring plants, you want to be applying that in winter uh, and give it some time to break down in the soil. That's pretty much it. Now, in terms of liquid feed, um, the main difference is that it will be available to your plants much quicker and you can often see a result within a couple of weeks, which is why if you have maybe some nutrient deficiencies in your plants and will definitely do an episode on on how to identify different common deficiencies you want to be fixing those with a liquid fertilizer of some kind not a slow release because it's just going to take too long unless you use the liquid here's a hot tip though all slow release fertilizers can be turned into liquid fertilizers so if all you have at home is the slow release pelletized fertilizer and let's say for example you have identified a nitrogen deficiency in in one of your plants and you well you could go out and buy a high nitrogen uh, liquid feed and you could fix the problem that way or you could take some of your pelletized uh, fertilizer soak it in a bucket of water much like the wormweed we talked about before, give it a, you know, at least a couple of days, but ideally a week or so, um, and then use that on your plants. And it's going to be functionally the same as if you were buying a liquid fertilizer. So what does that mean? Uh, you don't have to buy both. You're better off just buying slow release and then turning that into liquid feed as and when you need. So hope that answers your question. If it's about generally improving your soil for the next season, slow release all the way. If it's about identifying a problem or quickly switching the nutrient ratio of your fertilizer to encourage fruiting or something that you want to happen relatively quickly to a plant that's already established, liquid feeds the go. Um, But yeah, Hope that answers your question. Thanks so much, listener. So yeah, that uh, that wraps it up for another episode of The Gardening Show. If you're still around, thanks for sticking with me and thank you to all these people writing in questions, uh, keeping me company here while, <laughs> while Brendan's at home. Um, what's coming up in the next show? So a really interesting topic, um, soil, because really gardening starts with soil. Uh, so we're going to talk about different soil types, the ones that you'll find around, you know, Victoria uh, and in particular in this area. We'll talk about, uh, you know, things like pH, pH, you know, pH testing and things like that, uh, contamination, 
and um, you know ways to I guess amend soil and how to fix things like a heavy clay soil or if you're one of those unlucky people that essentially has beach sand in their backyard, uh, what can you do? We'll talk about the sixth permaculture principle, produce no waste. Very closely tied in with today's, but um, that one, yeah, I'll hopefully have some really some really nifty little tricks on how you can uh, stop anything leaving your property that is useful in the garden. We'll do a spotlight on beets and radishes. Um, quite different plants, obviously, but very similar in the way you grow them in the garden um, and a lot of the tips for one apply to the other. So we'll sort of do them as a, as a two-four. And to be honest, um, two of those crops, again, not everyone likes beets and radishes, but if you do, um, things that you should have in your garden pretty much all the time. So how to grow those the best. And we'll go into garden myth-busting and folklore. I already did a little bit of that today with the uh, <laughs> with the coffee grounds, but we'll come up with a few others of those those things that are thought to be common knowledge, but can actually be damaging to your garden potentially. Yeah, events. So we got some events coming up. So on Saturday week, so that's the nineteenth of August, uh, from ten a.m. to one p.m. is the August. Big Dig, uh, the Big Working Bee and Community Potluck Lunch at Downs Community Farm on Old Wells Road in Seaford. Uh, one of our big tasks for that day is improving the soil in our upcoming market garden area. So that's something we hope to chat about with you in, in, a, in an upcoming episode. Um, but we've got a huge plot of land that we want to use, but it is very sandy. So we're going to, we're going to do some really fun stuff to, to start improving it and, and building the topsoil so we can grow some great veggies there. So come along if you want to learn um, or do some hands-on development of the topsoil and learn about the benefits of things like green manure and windrows as well. So, that is again on the 19th of August from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. I'll also mention as well that we have a street library. So you're probably familiar with the street libraries outside of people's houses. We have an official one that we have put up at the farm. It's accessible. Well, it's accessible from Old Wells Road if you walk through the farm, but also it, it faces the bike path around the Seaford wetlands. Um, yeah tons and tons of gardening books in there so feel free to come along grab a bunch leave any of your old books in there and uh yeah if there's anyone in the farm at the time come and say hi of course one final note of course do not forget to send through any gardening questions to us uh it doesn't have to be during the show you can send them at any time 0493 213 831 uh, or you can get in touch with us um, via the Downs Farm email, downsestatecommunications at gmail.com. So, yeah, thank you so much, listeners. Uh, hope you have a great couple of weeks. Make sure you go out there and start inventoring your inventorying, <laughs> taking note of all the plastics in your garden 
and think of some great ways to replace them. And I will catch you with Brendan hopefully in a couple of weeks' time. Until then, get on out there and start growing. Have a great day.